everybody? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I'm green up here. Amen. Isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord? Amen. And to feel his presence, so thankful tonight. Do I need to? Okay, here we go. Amen. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. I'm thankful for the presence of the Lord, the strength of the Lord, and um, it's not working. It's okay. We'll do this. This one's working. Amen. The Lord is so good to us, and he meets with us, and he strengthens us. And, uh, you know, people in the world don't understand what it's like to come into the presence of the Lord. But for us who know what it is like, it is such a strength and such a privilege and an opportunity that even sometimes in the middle of the week, the weariness creeps in and maybe maybe this week more than any other for you VBS folks. Uh, the weariness just kind of creeps in and wears on you. But there's just something about coming together in the presence of the Lord that is strength. Amen? And I'm thankful for the people of God, for the presence of the Lord that meets with us when we come here. Amen. You can be seated tonight. I'm not going to read my text up front, which is probably heretical for Bible study night, not to read your text first, but... um, We've been talking about cruising, fellowship. We're on the cruise ship, fellowship. And, uh, you know, there's different kinds of cruises. And so tonight, we're going to take a little bit different kind of cruise. A lot of cruises go across the Gulf or out in the open waters or maybe the inside passage up to Alaska. But tonight want to do a little bit of a river cruise and uh, now a few months ago we were in Memphis and uh, we decided we they have a little Mississippi River boat cruise that you can take there <clears throat> if you've never done that I don't recommend it <clears throat> unless you just really have a thing for the Mississippi River there's probably not very much that's going to interest you so funny we got on this little boat and pull out into the river now at memphis the, the mississippi's pretty wide at memphis uh not its widest point but it's strong current and uh we pull out there and the tour guide stands up and he says i want you to look over here to your left and i want you to look over here to your right and he goes all right now you know exactly what it looks like all the way to new orleans <clears throat> And uh, it was it was hot and it was muddy and it was flat and it wasn't exactly European river cruise. But you know there is something about that Mississippi River. It it may not we laugh about it and it may not be the most beautiful thing to our eyes. But as far as the United States is concerned, it is a very important artery. And when you uh, you look at a map and you look at the Mississippi River you will you don't always notice it you know we if you've crossed it uh you know you just look and okay and then you go on your way 
But if you look at a map, it winds and undulates back and forth, and it makes crooks and turns. And and uh, most of us have probably never uh, gone from St. Louis to New Orleans, so you you lose some of that perspective. But it historically has been a very important artery in the United States, and it does wind and wander and meander back and forth as rivers are are want to do. And in the middle 1700s, there was a particularly opportune place along the Mississippi River that was originally kind of settled by the French, and it was such a nice port along the river. They called it the Little Gulf. It was just this nice area that made for a nice port, and sure enough, over the next 50 to 100 years, settlers made their way there. And uh, ultimately, they renamed this place from the Little Gulf. They named it Rodney, and it was in, it's in Mississippi. It's about 30 to 40 miles north of Natchez. And um, when Mississippi became a state, Rodney had already grown to the point where it was a very important um, port, the busiest port, in fact, between St. Louis and New Orleans. And when the legislature voted where they wanted to put the capital, Rodney fell three votes shy of being the capital, the first capital of Mississippi. Now, how many people have ever heard of Rodney, Mississippi? Me either, before this. Because what happened in the course of time is that there were a variety of things. There was malaria breakout or yellow fever actually breakout that they suffered and various things befell them. But the biggest thing was that there was a large sandbar because of this gulf or this opening, this large port there that made it so opportune actually also provided a lot of opportunity for the river to drop a lot of its silt as it turned that corner. And there was a large sandbar that formed, and over the course of a few years, the course of the river actually changed, and the river moved, and it left Rodney where Rodney was. And with no river and with no port, Rodney lost all of its economic advantages, and Rodney as a city died. Today, <clears throat> if, you, if you can find it, you can find ruins, you can find broken down old homes, a couple of whatever's left of old churches um, there in the area, but it's a couple of miles from where the river actually is. The river moved away and left Rodney all alone. Now, there is actually a biblical counterpart to this. It's not that unusual. And there is a, an example I would like to draw your attention to tonight, and that is the city of Ephesus. Ephesus, as you know, was an important city in the New Testament. Um, there, uh, just as a little bit of background, Ephesus had first been settled uh, probably 500 years before Christ. It had become an important port. It was a seaport. It was on the coast and was 
probably the largest port on the Aegean Sea. Ephesus exists in what is modern-day Turkey and um, was on the coast, was a major port city, and it had a, a lifespan of quite some time because of this. It had a population at its height. There are various numbers, 250,000, 500,000. Some have even estimated more in its height. Now, that would have been sometime within a couple of hundred years on either side of the time of the New Testament church. So you think about a city of half a million people in the ancient world, that presents some logistical issues. But Ephesus was a prosperous enough location that they could actually deal with some of these logistical problems. And there is a good deal of archaeological work that's going on even today in the site where Ephesus was. And as they dig, what they're finding is that they had running water in some of the areas of the city and probably even um, running sewer lines as well. So they were quite advanced. They had um, a large temple to Artemis, or Diana was the Roman equivalent. Artemis was the Greek goddess of the countryside. And they had a huge temple there, and uh, there was a large amount of business that was done around selling these little figurines and what have you that had to do with the worship of the goddess Artemis and um, or Diana. And uh, there was... That had even brought them some recognition from Rome, and and so it was a place of some prestige and and uh, some uh, prosperity. And of course, you know that it also had an important church history. Uh, Paul himself wound up in Ephesus, and in uh, Acts nineteen, he met certain disciples uh, in Ephesus, and he asked them, you know. Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And uh, so in the end of that story, Paul had prayed them through. They had received the Spirit. They had been rebaptized in Jesus' name. And that was the beginning of the church that was in Ephesus. Now, revival came to Ephesus, and it was so strong that <clears throat> they caused a riot because the church began to have an economic impact on the city of Ephesus. All of these people fleeing idolatry, becoming Christians, becoming believers, they stopped buying all of these figurines and silver figurines associated with the worship of the goddess. And the silversmiths got uh, really bent out of shape about all of this because they had lost their source of income. And there is one place where there is a near riot. Paul's life was actually in jeopardy because of all of this. And, and they had some extended revival, and they impacted this city of maybe half a million people. And they were not just a flash in the pan, because when you study history, what you realize is that Paul, of course, he spent time there, but then he wrote the letter originally addressed to the Ephesians. It was intended to be passed around to other churches, but it seems that Paul probably did really intend for it to go to Ephesus first. And um, there were others that were there. Paul was there. He left Timothy there. Timothy became the first pastor um, in Ephesus after Paul. And he was there for some time. And Paul would write 
1 Timothy, he was writing to Timothy at Ephesus, encouraging him to deal with the issues that were in the church. Eventually, the great apostle John would wind up in Ephesus, and apparently even Luke was there and spent some time there, and there is some evidence that Luke may have actually died. Luke and John both died in Ephesus, and Luke's place of burial is there. So this is um, outside of Jerusalem, and and uh, even Antioch and other places that are kind of famous in the New Testament. Ephesus was a prime location in New Testament Christianity. But, but Ephesus had a problem. And the problem that Ephesus had was though it had a great harbor that was a real strength to it economically, Ephesus sat on the coast where the river, the Caister River, emptied into the Aegean Sea. And the problem was that the river silted really badly. And so when the river would arrive at the coast of the Aegean Sea, you know how it is, um, those of you who remember from your, what is that, geology, geography, I don't know, when you studied about deltas, when the river comes to the point where it's going to empty into the sea, it spreads out. So while it's flowing in its channel, it has a certain velocity. But when it gets to the lowlands and the flatlands and it spreads out, it stops almost dead still. And all of that silt and sand that it has picked up, it drops. And this was what was happening with the Caister River. It was silting up the harbor. And in fact, even in the time of Paul... This was a common problem for Ephesus, and they were dredging the harbor regularly to try to keep commerce open and allow the ships to be able to come across the sea and to get into the Ephesian harbor so that the goods could be taken inland. But dredging and keeping this clean, keeping the silt out, was a major ordeal, and it was a constant battle that they were having to fight. And in fact, it was a losing battle. Because it seemed like the more that they dredged, the more that it silted. But Ephesus apparently had a problem even bigger than that. And that had to do with the nature and the problems that were in the church itself. And so when John received the revelation, and he did according to what the Lord told him to do, he wrote the things that he had seen, And the Lord told him to write the things that are and the things that are to come. Well, the things that are, there were letters to seven churches in that region that he wrote. And the first letter was to the church at Ephesus. So if you go with me to Ephesus or to Revelation chapter 2, you will see the letter to the church that was at Ephesus. And I want to walk through this with you quickly tonight. Revelation 2, beginning with verse 1. The scripture says, Unto the angel, or the messenger, of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. If you read these seven letters, you'll notice there's a common structure. There is a greeting, and some characteristic of the Lord is revealed. And then there is some assessment, some diagnosis of the church, some assessment of the positive things, if there are any, the negative things, if there are any. And then there is, at the end, a 
prescription, if you will, for how to correct the things that are wrong and to amplify the things that are right. So in this particular one, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. So the Lord says, I recognize that you have worked and you continue to work. You labor, you have patience and you have a certain discernment and you have worked with those who claim to be apostles, but they were false apostles. You tried them and you found them to be, you found them to be liars. In verse 3, you have borne and have patience for my name's sake, have labored and not fainted. This is a pretty positive commendation. If the Lord were to say this about us, I think if he were to stop there anyway, we would be pleased that the Lord had noticed that we had labored and that we had been uh, vigilant and diligent in finding out what was true and dividing what was true from what was not true. And the Lord says, I know your works and I see everything that you've done, your patience and your continued labor and that you have not fainted. But verse four, the tone shifts and the Lord says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. You've left your first love. Now, in the King James, where it says somewhat, we should not let that detract from the strength of what the Lord was saying. The Lord was saying, I have something serious against you. This was not a trifling matter. It was not a minor thing, but it was a very crucial thing. And the Lord says, in spite of all of these positive things, I have something very serious against you. And that is that you have left your first love. Now notice a lot of times, if we're not careful, we say that the church at Ephesus lost their first love. It's not what the scripture says. Scripture says they left their first love. Now the interesting thing, the word there for left is actually the same word that was used for divorce proceedings. And it seems the Lord is saying, you are separated. You have, you have been separated from your first love. In all of these positive things that you have done, yet there is a distance and a separation from your first love. It seems to me that what happened at Ephesus was that their service to the Lord had become mechanical. And they were working, they were patient, they were diligent, they were fulfilling their obligations, they were going about their business, they were even diligent in determining who was a true apostle and who was a false apostle, but that service, somehow it had become devoid of love and they had been separated from the love that characterized them at the beginning. When when he says first love here, it it doesn't necessarily or it doesn't always mean the first in order. It can mean the primary or the prototypical of the, the most important love. 
And they had been separated from that. We have to be careful in all of our doing, in all of our diligence, in all of our carefulness, that our service to the Lord doesn't become mechanical. And just going about our business, just going about doing what we think we are, fulfilling obligations, making sure that all the boxes are checked, because ultimately this thing really is about love. And we have to be very careful not to allow the things of this world. What did the Lord say? He said that one that was, it's a mixing uh, metaphors here a little bit, but talking about the one that was in the, uh, the shallow soil, the cares of life would come and choke out the life that was in that seed, and it would not grow to full maturity. And if we're not careful, we get caught up in the cares of life and just trying to make obligations inside the church, obligations to family, obligations to work, obligations to social things. We're constantly trying to meet obligations, so much so that our service to the Lord becomes mechanical. And it seems like Ephesus' spiritual experience somehow mirrored their physical experience of of living life on the river and on the harbor, and that life would come along and drop its silt into their life. And the shoreline of God's love and their shoreline of true service to the Lord, if they weren't careful, would creep out away from them. And that shoreline, as it crept further and further out, it was separating them from their love. What did Jesus say? John chapter 7. He that believeth on me as the scripture has said, out of his belly, out of his innermost being, will flow rivers, rivers of living water. And John was very careful to do us a good service and explain to us what Jesus meant when he said that. John added, it's in parentheses in my King James Bible, I don't know how it is in other translations, but John said, This spake he of the Holy Ghost, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He's talking about those rivers of living water, that is the river of the Holy Ghost. But if our hearts become overburdened with the cares of life, and we begin to silt up like the harbor at Ephesus, it becomes more and more difficult for the love of God to flow through us. And we have to do as the Ephesians did and carefully from time to time go in there and dredge out and make sure that everything is open and that the river can really flow and that we can really be connected to the thing that will keep us alive. Now don't misunderstand me. It's important for us to be involved in the church. It's important for us to be engaged. And for us to feel a sense of responsibility to this place. And, and I'm going to come back to the importance of us being together in this place. But that has to grow out of our love for God. It cannot exist in uh, exclusiveness or exclusion to the love of God. We don't have the strength within us to maintain that. What we need is that for our engagement in church work and our ministry to each other, it must flow out of a free-flowing spirit of the love of God in us. We've got to keep those internal spiritual harbors dredged out, cleared out, and allow the Spirit of the Lord to move. The pastor preached 
going to mix metaphors again. A few weeks ago, talked about redigging the the wells of Abraham. Why did those wells need to be redug? The scripture is very explicit because the enemy had stopped them up and had come along and put earth in them to keep the water from flowing. And so if they wanted water out of those wells, they had to redig them. And there are times in our lives when we've got to just say, all right, you know what? The cares of life have gotten too much. <coughs> There's been too much going on. I've got too many things on my mind. My mind is pulled in too many directions. I need to take some time and I need to clear out some things and create some opportunities in my life for the river of the flow of the Holy Ghost to flow in my life. And we talk about spiritual disciplines, about regular Bible reading, prayer, fasting. What are we doing? Are we trying to prove to God that he owes us something? No. What we're trying to do is withdraw ourselves from the things of life that would distract us, and we're trying to create opportunities in the presence of the Lord where he can move and he can work in our lives. That's the purpose of spiritual disciplines is to prepare us for a move of God and then to create opportunities where we're in the presence of the Lord so that he can move and that he can flow. And the church at Ephesus had just allowed their spiritual their spirituality they had allowed it to become mechanical and it was separated from love now they certainly had a love for truth but you know jesus said i am the way the truth and the life and as important as it is for us to love right doctrine please don't misunderstand me i don't want to diminish that It's important, and I'm a firm believer in it. But our love for right doctrine can't be about winning arguments or about some arrogance that I have the truth or some idea that we're somehow better because we believe X or we do Y or we do this. No, Jesus really is the truth. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If we love the truth, we're going to love Jesus. And if we love Jesus, we're going to love each other. Now don't be confused either, because I don't have a real simple syrupy definition for love. Sometimes love is challenging. What I mean by that is that, I've said this before, but agape love, the kind of love that the scripture talks about, always acts in the best interest of the object of affection. You know, guys, when you're in, you remember this older ones and the younger ones be fresh on your mind. When you're in school, you see that cute girl and you think you love her. But really what you love is the idea of being with her and what that would mean for your prestige and and uh, it's, it winds up if you're really honest a lot of all of that puppy love and that sort of thing it's self-serving it's I, I love you for the way you make me feel when I'm around you I, I love you for whatever fleeting momentary reasons might exist but real love always acts in the best object or in the best interest of the object of affection 
That means like a doctor, if you go to the doctor and he sees that you're sick, he owes it to you to tell you that you're sick. It's not very loving for him to know that you're sick and tell you you're just fine and know that you're a time bomb ticking as you walk out of his office. That's not a loving thing to do. And for the same reason and by the same principle, when we encounter people who are hungry for God, we have to find a way to let them know that their sin is what's separating them from God. It's their sin that is destroying their life. It's their sin that's bringing misery to them. And if they will turn from their sin and they will turn themselves to God, he will cleanse them and he will put them back in right relationship with him and he will bring great blessing to them. That is the most loving thing that we can do is to find a way to say that in a manner that they can accept it and act on it. This idea of love, they left Ephesus, they left their first love. They let it slide away. They let it get away from them. But what do we mean when we say love? One of the Pharisees came to Jesus, Matthew 22, and said, what is the great commandment? And even Jesus could not give just one great commandment. He said, there's two. The first commandment is love the Lord your God with, our, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. Love the Lord. The second commandment is like, just like it. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. What, what's Jesus saying there? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as though you can feel it when they hurt. L- love your neighbor as though you are connected to them because you are connected with them. And then Jesus makes this really profound statement. He says, on these two points, love God, love your neighbor, on those two points, hang all the law and prophets. See, when I was in school, I didn't like to memorize. That's why I wouldn't. (laughs) When you're young, you make decisions for foolish reasons, okay? I didn't want to be a chemical engineer because you had to memorize too much. You had to go through organic chemistry. You had to memorize all this stuff. So that's baloney. I want to be a mechanical guy because I can know a couple. Newton had two laws. If I can learn those two laws, I can derive everything I need to know. I don't have to memorize anything. And the Lord said, you know, really, you don't have to memorize the Ten Commandments. You can derive them. If you love God and you love your neighbor... And you allow those to work out that you're gonna, you're gonna figure it out. Go back and look at the Ten Commandments. The first four are about loving God. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't make any idols. Don't take my name in vain. Honor the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. And the last six, did you get that? More than half are about how we interact with each other. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness, don't covet your neighbor's stuff. I probably missed one. But the last six are about our interaction with each other. You got to love God and you got to love your neighbor as yourself. 
What happened with Ephesus is when they divorced themselves, when they allowed the shoreline of God's love to move away from them, they lost their love for God, they lost their love for each other, and it just became about their service, their mechanical service to the Lord. And the Lord said, if you don't take some care, I will remove your candlestick. And... Not to spoil the story, but Ephesus is no more. Ephesus lies in ruins today. Notice what the Lord said. Verse 5 of Revelation 2. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. Remember back to what it used to be like when you really loved God. Remember the freshness of it. Remember the zeal of it. It wasn't burdensome, but it was, it was exciting. It was a, there was something motivating you. You weren't having to just carry yourself along, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, fulfill all your obligations. No, you were being carried along. Remember from where you're fallen and repent and do the first works. You feel distant from your first love? Do the first works. How? What was it that you did in the beginning? What is it that was different in the beginning? Well, if you go back to Acts chapter 2, it said they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship. It was the, doc, the apostles' doctrine and it was the apostles' fellowship. There was a partnering with each other. Now, you can explore this word that's used in the New Testament for fellowship, but it, it, it means that they're linked together, that there's a partnership, that there's a bonding of each other together. So much so that if you're in fellowship with somebody, it's not always rainbows and unicorns. It can be really miserable stuff, but that's okay. You're locked in and you're doing it together. You're fellowship together. You're partnered together with the Lord. This is why Paul would say, in Philippians, we ought to know him in the power of his resurrection, and we get really excited about that. But then he continues on and says, and in the fellowship of his suffering, when we're bonded together, when we're yoked together, there is something that keeps us tied together, and we go through life together. We're on this cruise, this fellowship. And if you, if you will notice in Acts 2, Sometimes we stop a little short, but the fact that they continued steadfastly in, doc, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship had some implications. And in breaking of bread and in prayers, <clears throat> that's apostolic. They prayed together, they ate together. That's what we do. Some people don't want to admit it. <clears throat> and just... Keep reading. Fear came upon every soul. There are some implications of fellowship. Fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. All that believed were together and had all things common. Now, this is not prescribed. We don't see this happening in other places in the New Testament. I believe the Spirit of the Lord was working in the church in Jerusalem because the Lord knew that the days were numbered for Jerusalem, that Rome was going to just lay the place flat. And so there were some unusual things that happened in Jerusalem. But notice this, continuing in the fellowship of the apostles 
it had impact on the way that they lived. And they had all things common. And they sold their possessions and goods and they parted to them. They parted them to all men as every man had need. They pooled their resources together and they divvied them up as every man had need. And they continued daily in one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. But it all went back to continuing in doctrine and in fellowship. Where the Ephesians went wrong was that they allowed themselves to be silted up, if you will. And they got separated from love and they only were continuing in their service. But it wasn't motivated by the rivers of living water that the Lord desired to have flow through them. I'm going to read one more passage and it is Hebrews chapter 10. And... um, It's kind of a famous passage. You'll know where I'm going. But I think the context is important. Hebrews 10, toward the end, verse 25, talks about not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. But if you read back a few verses, you'll understand why. There's context. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another. Fellowship is considerate. When we are yoked together, I'm concerned about how well you're doing. And you're concerned about how well I'm doing. Let us consider one another. To provoke unto love and to good works. See, there's, there's this thing that God put inside of us. And even those of us that are more introverted, we still, being a hermit is not a healthy thing. Because most of us need at least some human interaction. Brother James Hughes talked about it last week. You need that face-to-face thing with there is comfort in knowing that somebody can see behind me and somebody can help me if I'm in danger. And, and we, need this, we need this human interaction whether we, whether we realize it or not, whether we recognize it or not, there is value there. And, and I may have mentioned this before. You know, it is a war crime. It's considered torture to put someone in solitary confinement for too long. If you leave a man alone, completely alone for too long, the Geneva Convention says, hey, that is a war crime that you can be tried for. That is torture because we're not built to be that way. We're built to be yoked together, partnered together. And and the truth is that if you don't go to church, you're probably going to go somewhere. You wind up at a ball game, at a restaurant, at a bar, at a club. You're going to go somewhere. Why, why is it that, uh, that 
There are all these gathering places all throughout society. It's not that church is something weird. It's that this is really the place where we should be gathering, where we should be fellowshiped together, where we should have common things that we are sharing and that we are considering one another and we're provoking or we're encouraging one another to good works. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That's the way that we do it. When we fellowship, we come together. Why don't you stand with me tonight? In our own lives, in the Ephesian church, they were doing all the right things, but apparently it wasn't for the right reason, and it's not sustainable. And let me just tell you, it doesn't matter where you are today, what you're involved in, what your activities are. If you're not doing it for the right reason, it's not sustainable. If you're not being motivated and carried along by the love of God and by the flowing and the power of the Holy Ghost, it is not sustainable. You cannot do it in your own strength. You cannot continue in your own strength. The river will move and it will leave you on high ground. It will leave you high and dry And like Rodney, Mississippi, you will die. You will be a ghost town, a spiritual ghost town, some shell of what used to be there, but completely devoid of any life. But if you will somehow consistently purge yourself, cleanse yourself, and allow that Holy Ghost to move and to carry you along, that will be the thing that really pushes you to true service and to valuable service for the Lord. We need each other. Amen? We need each other. Lord, we're thankful tonight for your word. Thankful, Lord, that you have left to us the treasure of your word. And I'm so grateful for the Spirit, Lord, the Holy Ghost that comes into our lives and that it flows in us. It gives us strength and it is the love of God that works through us reaching out to not only to you but to each other lord don't let us deceive ourselves and say we love god but if we don't like a brother if we hate our brother how can we love him that we haven't seen if we don't love him who we have seen you ask that question lord we ask you tonight lord to help us keep our hearts clean and pure and allow the spirit to flow through us Rivers of living water, Lord, that will strengthen us and carry us along through this life with service to you and preparation for your soon return. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you. Friday night, 7 o'clock. And then this is going to have a great weekend this weekend for Father's Day. Lord bless you. Go with you tonight.